What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to Storytime in Paris on Paris Underground Radio. For more great content and to join our book club, please join us on Patreon. Since well before Victor Hugo looked up at Notre Dame and thought, huh, what if a hunchback lived in there? Authors have been inspired by Paris. Welcome to the Storytime in Paris podcast on Paris Underground Radio, where we keep that tradition alive by showcasing an author with a French connection in each episode. Every episode will feature five questions asked by you, our author's biggest fans, and answered live on air. Then our authors will treat us to a reading of an excerpt from their book. I'm your host, Jennifer Garrity. Would you like to join the Storytime in Paris book club? Head on over to patreon.com slash Paris Underground Radio and stay tuned to the end of this episode for more information. Welcome to the season six premiere of Storytime in Paris. I'm so excited to be back and to share with you some of the books I've been reading and some of the fabulous authors who have written said books. My first guest this season is author and journalist Sophie Hardak. Sophie is originally from Germany, but worked as a news reporter for Reuters in Italy, Japan, and France, before eventually settling down in London, where she's written for a number of publications, including The Atlantic, The Guardian, and The Daily Telegraph. She currently works for the BBC. Sophie's first three novels were critically acclaimed works of fiction, including The Registrar's Manual for Detecting Forced Marriages, which was chosen as one of the Waterstone's 11 Best Debuts of 2011, and Confession with Blue Horses, which was shortlisted for the Costa Award. Sophie's fourth book, Languages Are Good For Us, is her nonfiction debut. Languages Are Good For Us is about language and how it develops, how it evolves, how it's learned, how it's used, how it can die or be revived. It's a wonderfully researched book that honors the many ways in which we humans have communicated over time and mixes historical fact with Sophie's personal experiences. Sophie has also generously offered to give away a copy of Languages Are Good For Us to one lucky listener. To be entered to win, please visit Paris Underground Radio on Instagram, like our page, find the post about this episode, and tell me which language on Sophie's book cover is the oldest. Without further ado, please allow me to introduce Sophie Hardak, author of Languages Are Good For Us. Hello, Sophie. Thank you so much for talking with me today. It's such an honor to finally get to sit down with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's really, really lovely to be here. I'm so glad it finally worked out. I've been trying to get you on the show for at least a year now, so I'm thrilled this is actually finally working out. Oh, same here. It's really, really nice. Can you start by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes. So I'm Sophie Harnack. I grew up in Germany and I now live in London. I work as a writer and journalist, so I kind of have two lives. Um, as a journalist, I work for the BBC and I've actually just launched a new series all to do with languages. And, and then as a writer, I write fiction and also I've written one nonfiction book. And what is your connection to Paris or to France? Well, that actually came through the journalism. So years ago, I worked for a news agency and they posted me to different countries. 
Uh, I started out in London, then I lived in Italy and worked there for them, then Tokyo, and then they sent me to Paris. So that was the start. And then I've been having that kind of ongoing relationship with Paris ever since. Uh, when I then went freelance, I still lived there. And as you know, I've been back and forth quite a bit. Yes, and that's luckily how we got to meet each other. Exactly. So the book that we're going to talk about today, Languages Are Good For Us, is your nonfiction book. Can you tell us a little bit about that book and what it's about? Yes. So the book is about languages. Now you might think, gosh, there's a huge, absolutely huge area. And really what happened was my editor, my fiction editor, had read my journalism about languages. So that's how my two worlds collided. Usually, you know, sort of as fiction, I have that interest perhaps in people's stories, motivations. And then as a journalist, I kind of, you know, obviously stick to the facts. My editor asked if I'd be interested in writing a book about languages. And that's but that was pretty much the brief. I went away and thought, how can I make this meaningful and add something to kind of, you know, the, the vast world of language books uh, that's already out there. And I thought, oh, I'll give it a structure of almost like connected short stories. And they're, they're nonfiction, they're all factual. But the idea is a bit that each of them doesn't just tell us something about a language in the sense of grammar or a word, but more about what people have done with languages and more about relationships. And like, why do we, for example, even learn another language? And the, I mean, the question I started out with was even things like, when, when did people first start translating between languages? Because you can pick up one tiny thing like that. And it's so mind blowing. Like, you know, thousands of years ago, perhaps even be, you know, before writing was even invented, how did people do that? You hear somebody make a totally different noise. How do you as a human realize this noise is something you could learn? Those sounds, they also have meaning. And you could put them in a relationship with your own language. And then, you know, it would, it would sort of tessellate, like you would actually in parallel, there would be a relationship and you could learn that. And then you could speak to that person and their sounds or they can speak to you, you know, and so on. At that point, I actually initially thought, oh, I'm sure there won't be much documentation. It's not something people will have written about. And then I kind of went right back to cuneiform and the sort of very first tablets and asked researchers about them who study cuneiform as sort of the ancient script that was invented in, in what's now the Middle East and um, in Iraq. And it turns out the first tablets were all multilingual. It turns out that actually the weirdness is not being interested in those other sounds and understanding them. It's almost like, no, 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 the weirdness is more like seeing them as something very, very separate. So the very early tablets, people just and when I say tablets, I mean sort of clay tablets, and they wrote on them in this script, and the script could be adapted to lots of different languages. And initially, they didn't really separate right from the start. They first wrote in Sumerian, which is a very old language that has no modern survivor. And then there were people speaking Akkadian, which is related to modern Arabic. And then already they started writing in Sumerian and Akkadian, writing little word lists, or even long word lists and both. But also they wrote in... It was, I think in the city of Katna, they just started sentences in one language and would finish them in another, things like that. Or they were just sort of totally mixed. And I found that so wonderful to think like, oh, you know, someone who speaks different languages, I often get this question of how many languages do you speak and how did you learn the languages? And it's sort of almost seen as this unusual skill. People 
often feel quite anxious or awkward around learning languages. And so there was something really nice to think like, oh, no, no, it's something that as humans, we've sort of always done. We've always tried to understand each other, you know, as soon as we came into contact with one each other, you know, another community, basically. Yeah, I love that. When I first started reading it, I thought it was going to be about like more of a scientific approach to how we learn languages, like literally, how does your brain do it? And there is some of that in this. But I love that it really became about the use of language and how it connects us or sometimes how it separates us. If like you really don't understand someone, you think they're mocking you, that can lead to maybe a war. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the, yes, and the mocking, I mean, the jokes, that was the other thing. Finding like very old bilingual jokes where, you know, that was sort of a tablet, like a story written on a tablet where, uh, you know, that was about sort of 3,000 years old, maybe that tablet. And um, where this guy comes to a town and he asks the market vendor, like, where can I find the temple? But he asks an Akkadian, which is the sort of more, you know, popular sort of spoken the street type of language. And the vendor, because this is such a renowned and learned city, even the, the vegetable vendor speaks this very refined Sumerian. And then he thinks she's cursing him. And he says, <laughs> why are you cursing me? And then she says, but I'm just telling you the temple is that way. And he's like, oh, no, you're cursing me again. <laughs> It did. I mean, I don't know, Jennifer. It, it did remind me a bit of that, you know, that anxiety I used to feel first in Paris, even just like buying a croissant or something. You know, thinking, how is this going to go? <laughs> or in any in any country, you know, when you just think, I'm going to test this out in the wild now, and I'm going to put those words out there, and I just hope I'll be understood, sort of thing. Yeah, I know exactly that anxiety that you talk about. I think there comes a point, and this is what I try to tell people when they come when they're testing out a new language, like you're, it's already an accomplishment to try another language and it's a way to bridge gaps and to communicate. And so you should never feel self-conscious. And it's funny that you talk about like how it used to be so common that everyone spoke multiple languages. Cause I was talking about this really recently with a group of friends who are also expats or are married to someone from a different culture. And we were talking about how we use language and, you know, oftentimes we will speak in both languages in the same sentence. Or I have a friend who is American who's married to an Italian, and she only speaks Italian and he only speaks English, even though it's not their native language. But they'll have these bilingual conversations where they're each speaking the other person's language. And I always find for me, it's much more difficult when I go back to the US and can only speak English and I can't put French words in there because I guess I've gotten kind of lazy and sometimes French words are just better suited to what I mean. And so when I have to try to then only find the English word, that becomes more complicated. Definitely. I do that as well. And in terms of the historical record, of course, we have to remember those tablets. Most people would have been illiterate or maybe they would have recognized some really important signs, you know, sort of traders and people like that. But but literacy was still pretty small. So it captures a pretty small slice. But even in those tablets, you have uh, records from communities where traders, you know, came to a place speaking one language, and then they married local women, and they raised kind of the first documented multilingual families, which I find very lovely. And then they wrote, because of the way the men traveled, sometimes also the women, and they were apart for long stretches of time, they wrote letters to each other. In case people are now like, oh, love letters. I mean, they're more like make sure you pay so-and-so the silver for the lentils or something like that. Make sure you get a good price for the textiles. I mean, they're not massively poetic, but, you know, it was a really good idea of how these, like, multilingual families communicated and that it wasn't, you know, their lives were obviously extremely different, but in terms of the 
language usage that was pretty similar. As you say, they also did exactly the same thing of, um, say, writing in Akkadian, that would have been the written language, but then sprinkling in. So the local women came from an area, sort of what's now uh, Turkey, and they spoke an ancient Anatolian language. And so there would be little loan words that people just picked up in the market. Exactly as you say, it would be like a handy word for something like maybe a spice or furniture um, that just kind of existed in that other community, you know. I've been trying to find out because researchers always say, oh, like furniture. And then you're kind of so desperate, like, what kind? What did they have? Was it a chair? Were these the first <laughs> people to have chairs <laughs> in that part of the world? And it's like, oh, this cool thing. We call it a chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's also fascinating to see how words have traveled and evolved and which ones we still use today in which languages. Like, it's, it's really fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, and it's that enriching thing, isn't it? I mean, coming back to the anxiety... I still get that, especially when I haven't spoken a language for a bit. So now that I'm in London, mm-hmm. when I go to Paris, there is that initial sort of, you know, like I sort of hesitate, right? It's that, it's that slight wall you have to overcome. And then and then you do it, and then the more you get into it, and then the more you speak it, at some point it just, it's okay. And I also find it helps if it's a friend. I find it so connected to emotion if it's someone you know well, where you know you'll be forgiven <laughs> for misgendering objects or something. Then it's not <laughs> yes. such a big deal, right? Whereas with a stranger, we feel, I mean, I think it's naturally in a way to feel anxious because communication is so much, right? It's not just the information. It's kind of, oh, I'm presenting myself to you, stranger, yeah. for the first time, and I'm opening my mouth, and out comes this, <laughs> yeah. this sentence. Friend or foe. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yes. But if anyone, listening to this has this problem of thinking I'd love to speak other languages but I I feel so shy about it I think one top tip would be well there's several one to just kind of know that this is normal and then the other one I find is it can be really helpful to have a sort of language bridge person by which I mean when you live in a country and then you start to make local friends and then I find in that familiar circle it becomes easier and I find actually weirdly there are often people I understand better like the people I know best if it's like you kind of start to make a good friend and then you hear them it's almost as if everybody has slightly their own language and then understanding that person or it could be your language teacher you know that would be like your language tutor from that country and and it's almost like you understand them and then slowly gradually your brain expands the range to also understand the language when it's spoken by a stranger by someone from a different region that sort of thing So that's the other thing that I think it's totally possible and indeed quite likely that you might understand some people really well, but that doesn't mean you understand that language perfectly in every context, right? If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also enjoy my podcast, City of Muses, which is brand new to the Paris Underground Radio Network. Each week, I chat with contemporary artists, poets, dancers, designers, and performers to explore what inspires them where their creativity comes from, and how Paris has helped or hindered their dreams come true. Inspiration and creativity meet in Paris, the City of Muses. Check out City of Muses now, available wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be right back with Storytime in Paris after a word from our sponsors. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now, back to story time in Paris. I also think that it's important not to think of language just as a set of rules, but also as a tool for self-expression for whatever culture the language comes from. So understanding how language is used in that culture, why sentences are structured that way because of how the people are expressing themselves. Once you really latch onto that, then language becomes much easier too. Definitely. And I also think like, you know, when I was thinking about this interview and I thought about these questions people often ask around languages, like, say, how many can you learn or how many do you speak? And I was thinking, I mean, that's a perfectly valid question. And there are people who really, really like learning lots and lots and lots of languages. But I was thinking there are also people I know who speak one foreign language, but then they have this really deep relationship with that language. And actually, given that one single language, I think there is a study that the average American knows around 70,000 English words. I mean, it's a lot. And on average, we learn a new word in our own language every three days. Wow. Yes. I mean, it's kind of like that's if you distribute it. I think what happens is if you have a DIY project, right, you might suddenly learn like 10 new words for like Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Or flathead screwdriver or something. And then others like, say, Brexit, you know, might come through politics, but on average, they estimate this thing. So you think even in your own language, it keeps evolving. And then if you even just have, I mean, I say even just, like having one foreign language is already such a big step and you're potentially adding then thousands and thousands of words. So you could spend a lifetime just with your own language and one foreign language and that would be plenty, right? That's the thing. And unless you start learning both languages from birth, you'll always be better at one because you had a jump on it like you had a head start on one language because you learned it for x many years before you learned the second language so when people ask me if I'm fluent I'm like well yes but I mean I'm much better in English you know I I know more yeah in English just because I've studied it for longer yeah it's interesting and then as you say on the other hand I'm sure there are now sort of certain subjects you would feel more comfortable or like where your French vocabulary would be perhaps either more up to date or would you just not nuanced uh we were I guess there's a strikes going on now and you might have quite a rich strike related vocabulary in French it does help years ago um (laughs) one of my language teachers said something that really stuck with me which is that languages never stand still they're never they're never static they either you get better at them if you practice including your own, like including your native language, if you just keep engaging with it and listening and reading or you know, signing whatever your chosen channel of communication is, you'll keep refining and enriching it. 
And then if you don't use it, it will slide. Yeah. <laughs> Including your own. Like I know when I speak German, I do use it a lot because I speak it with my son. But when I use it with my brothers, my middle brother thinks it's really funny that I use these vintage words. I use these <laughs> <90s> words. <laughs> I don't know what the English equivalent would be. I don't know if you tell me what would be like a, I think in, in English it would be something like, there's a word naff for something that's not very cool. I think that's like a 90s word. Yeah, we don't use that in the US, but yes, I know what you mean. I can't think of any 90s words right now. A lot of 80s words are coming to my mind. But yeah, they also say like you can sort of date expats by their the language that they use in their native tongue because like you pick up the slang that you spoke when you were in your native tongue and then like you oftentimes stick there if you're not keeping up with the language. I myself watch a lot of really awful reality TV, so I am up with the latest uh, slang. <laughs> That's a good tip. That's a good tip right there. Well, I can share my own. <laughs> <laughs> my own good tip is what I... So my current language goal is actually to improve my French because while I speak it, I'd like to speak it better. I'd like to kind of just have a broader vocabulary. And um, one thing I've always found that's kind of a really, really nice way to just engage with any language and not have the anxiety is to read in it. So nice. You can, you know, do it at your own pace. And yes, eventually you'll still need to speak to practice, but it's just a really nice, relaxing way. And I find especially... um Reading sort of, you know, what some people might call trashy books. I don't call them trashy because I don't discriminate in that way. But say the more like whatever it is, whether it's, you know, a thriller or also children's books can be good for that. Just something with a strong plot that carries you through and where it's mainly about the action. And then sometimes the language is, you know, kind of a bit pacey like that as well. And I find that's a, it's a nice way. Yes, but reality TV, I think would also do that job very well. It just needs to be a pleasure. Like you need to enjoy whatever it is you're doing or you're not going to do it. Yes. Oh, I also find on streaming services, again, sort of rom-coms and different languages, there's quite nice Spanish and Italian ones out there. Yes, I agree. You can also, you know, toggle subtitles. So have them in the language you're watching or in your native language, and it helps reinforce your listening skills as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good tip because there is actually research on that and they have found that when you have the subtitles switched on in that language, that you do understand it better. And actually that's something I use a lot. So with Spanish and Italian, I often switch on the subtitles, even though I do understand it, but it just helps you then also recognize that word when it's written. I think it just sort of reinforces it a bit more, right? Yeah. So how many languages do you speak? Well, I was thinking sort of for this interview, it's always a question that then gets this really long response. And I've <laughs> worked really hard on just giving an easy one, which is that I've studied eight and I would say I speak five, but including my own. So I've studied eight, then I have one German, which is my native language. And I would say I speak German, English, French, Italian and Spanish. But between French, Italian and Spanish, I mean, A, as many listeners will immediately realise, I mean, it's kind of cheating because they're all closely related. <laughs> So it's not quite the same as having five that are like, say, I don't know, Polish, Hebrew, and Mandarin. I don't think you should downplay it. I don't think you should. It's still an accomplishment, even if they're similar. But what I find interesting is it's really, it's almost like you have this group of friends. And then if you happen to live in the same town as one of them, you see that person a lot, right? And you love them all equally, but you'll be more up to date with that person. So it used to be that Spanish was my strongest language of those three. And then when I lived in Italy, you know, Italy kind of came to the forefront. And so it always, and now I would say actually Spanish is probably the weakest of the three because I just don't 
practice it that much. There's also kind of an interesting gap in, I have noticed painfully, in how this sort of self-perception, so I used to think, oh yeah, my Spanish is so great because at some point I spoke it quite, you know, so fluently, effortlessly, it just didn't feel like a big effort. And then the other day, someone spoke you know, in Spanish, and I just wanted to go right in there because I speak Spanish, right? <laughs> I realized I had to, A, I kept slipping it into Italian, and B, it's just not, you know, you do need to reactivate it. You do need to kind of work at it again. It's not like it's just there on the shelf and you can pick it up. So, And when you're writing, do you write always in English? And if so, why? Or why would you choose one language over another to write in? So the English thing actually came about somewhat accidentally. I was in Tokyo. And I think there's something about sometimes being in a very new context that helps people do something creative they maybe didn't dare do before. I think it has something to do with that shyness we have, you know, whether it's speaking languages or writing something about sort of expressing ourselves in a new way. And there was this lovely informal writing group People came from, you know, sort of all over the world, quite a few North Americans and mostly, I think, and also, you know, Japanese people who wrote in English. And then that just became that social, you know, it meant they could re- read what I wrote. Plus, my journalism is in English because I've always worked for English language publications. So it sort of became my book writing language. I do also write in German more so now because I use it so much with my son and we kind of write little books together and they're in German. But again, I also used to think that, oh, I could just like that. It was just like whichever I chose and I could write in German. And again, kind of like literary language or even any kind of writing at length, any kind of written language, it's its own thing. And I do find that now when I write in German, when I write emails, you know, it's not just about, sure, I can, you know, it's it, it's my mother tongue. But when I write emails, it's also about getting the register right. And it's sort of certain stock phrases so for example in English as we said when we were arranging this interview is the thing of oh yeah you know looking forward to this right and that's just a very typical thing and then a while ago I typed it out in a German email I thought there's something about this that's that sounds weird like it's a correct translation like ich freue mich auf but I think people just wouldn't use it and then I checked with a German friend and they kind of laughed and they were like oh yeah it sounds like your child saying I'm so looking I can't wait for this birthday party like it just, <laughs> it's just this sort of exuberance actually I don't know what do you say in French Jennifer like in French I mean informally so to you maybe I would say j'ai hâte de, de voir something like that but not in a formal setting like I wouldn't say it in like to a formal interview I wouldn't say like j'ai hâte I don't think right like or if you were to kind of go to the bank to sort it wouldn't be j'ai hâte whereas like in in English, you could say, oh, I look forward to discussing this with you or something like it. Yeah. I often find that I have to call my <laughs> my mom and read her a sentence and just ask if grammatically this is how we arrange words in English. You know, like, is this a sentence in English? Because in French, you sometimes will put the words in a weird order, you know? Wow. So what other things? It's so beautiful, this dress. But you wouldn't say that in English. Ah. You know, that kind of thing. But then, of course, I also kind of love it because I love the creativity of taking languages further, right? And there is this, so I know some people feel very, very strongly about grammar and kind of like learning grammar and getting it right. And I kind of totally respect that. And I can see why that it it clarifies things and it's important. But it also kind of, I do love sort of uh, grammatical experiments. Or <laughs> you know? I do too. Modification. That's one of my favorite things about English is that you can play with the language so much. Like you can take 
any noun and make it into a verb and people are there with you. They understand what you mean. I love that. That's really interesting. Yes. And this idea of they're there with you, right? Like as long as you sort of take them along and it's clear why this is happening. It's beautiful distress. Well, I, I do like it. It immediately makes you sound quite French. I mean, which... <laughs> it does. Right. But you wouldn't say that in English, right? It sounds weird. I just think it sounds a bit French. There you go. <laughs> just <sounds> like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, even in English, I mean, there are all those, you know, so that endless commentary on the differences between American, British, English, not so much even the language as yes. such, but the usage, like when you, the kind of like, oh, interesting. And the kind of the many, many meanings of the word interesting, which also can mean not interesting at all. Please stop talking about this sort of thing, right? Like, I mean, the total opposite. I just had the same conversation with a British colleague. Someone had written and said they'd be happy to do something. And he was like, oh, okay, so we need to get, they don't want to do this. We need to find another way around it. And an American colleague and I were like, no, no, they're happy to do it. They're they're fine with it. And he was like, oh, I thought that was a polite way of them saying, you know, I'd be happy to, but I don't want to. Whereas as an American, if you say you're happy to, it means like, yeah, sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. I so love that. I mean, I mean, if you think about it, it's so natural for people to feel anxious around like using any language because like, <laughs> yeah. the other thing about fear is like, and that's something that even after all these years, I still find very difficult to sort of read correctly is um, when, <laughs> when people say we should definitely go for a drink sometime, it can sometimes mean we should go for a drink, but can also mean we should never go for a drink. And actually all it means is I don't want to talk to you about this right now. So it can just mean, yes, please stop talking about this thing that you're talking about. <laughs> like we should go for lunch for some time. We should go for a drink sometime. I do have a friend here who speaks really, really good English, but in his culture, he comes from a culture where things are sort of much more clearly spelled out. And he said he found it so confusing when he was working at this pub and his colleague kept saying like, oh yeah, we should go for a drink sometime. And he was like, so, you know, when, when is this happening? No, it never never happened. But going back to the book that you've written, Languages Are Good For Us, this is such a like a deeply and well-researched book. When you look back at it now, how much of the information in the book did you already know or have an inkling of and how much of it was just pure discovery? I think actually almost all of it was discovery in the sense that, yes, I started somewhere and that I knew there were languages and there were many of them. <laughs> like This idea that people have been learning each other, each other's languages for so long. Oh, that was a huge discovery. I think that it spans so widely that even in the past, there were people being very adventurous and not just scribes or scholars, but really just kind of merchants like anyone who just, you know, selling some, I don't know, pickled fish somewhere and kind of wants to haggle over the price or this informality to me was very beautiful and that was it was new but it chimed with once I thought about it with my own experience like um there's this scholar um John Gallagher and he uses this phrase invisible educators and it's sort of you know it's like invisible educators invisible translators like all these people who have shaped our languages and have helped us learn them and helped me learn them all the time like everything we've just talked about of like oh you're trying out you're trying to kind of buy that baguette or something at that point the person selling the baguette is also your teacher you know and it, it it did make me that was a kind of discovery where I was like oh yes of course and it's something to be very grateful for every time someone corrects my grammar <laughs> 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 actually I find in general people are very welcoming about that I know, I know that sometimes people feel like oh and then it you know there's a hostile reaction but I find also if one thinks about it more as the learning teaching process 
then getting corrected, you know, is like, oh, that's helpful because now I know. But yeah, most of it was new. I was very lucky in that I, I felt I wanted it to be kind of rigorously researched. I wanted it to be very accessible, but at the same time, not just sort of repeat stuff I'd heard, you know, uh, not repeat gossip and to kind of go straight to researchers. So in terms of the, say, the tablets, I really wanted to speak to people who'd worked specifically, you know, who could read uh, Sumerian Akkadian who'd worked with that. And people were extremely generous. I do think right now there's this interesting golden age in popular science and that people are very interested in knowing how stuff works. And I also find that researchers are very open and generous when it comes to explaining their research. And often they they were very delighted and extremely welcoming in terms of say people working on deciphering very rare languages, you know, they really kind of, they want others to know about it. It's not as if they're like, haha, I know this thing and you must never, you must <laughs> yes. never know how to crack the code. Only me. Like I found actually- Hoarding my knowledge. Especially right now, there are a lot of projects and I would kind of definitely encourage people, even on Twitter, to sort of seek out, you know, these languages that they're interested in. There's like a lot of projects that make information very accessible, be it through blogs or, you know, kind of like word of the day sort of thing. So that was very nice. And they were very nice in sharing and explaining their research. And then also in terms of fact checking the books, because by then the pandemic had broken out, the libraries were closed. And I had a long list of like, oh, I'll go to the British Library and look up this thing and that thing. And that wasn't possible. And then we're talking about things that are really not online. I think that's the other thing that, as amazing as the internet is, there's a surprising amount of stuff that you can't look up, especially to do with specific episodes in history, right? Specific rare publications. So I reached out to scholars and sometimes just asked them, you know, do you mind reading this? Is this correct? Is my understanding correct? Or could you help me with this? And people were so generous. And that was, uh, that was very, very helpful. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may enjoy our sister podcast, Molly on a Trip, Music Around Paris, which is brand new to the Paris Underground Radio Podcast Network. Molly sits down with local French artists or touring musicians from all over the world to talk about what's going on in their careers and what inspires them. Get insights into what these musicians love most about Paris. Check out Molly on a Trip, Music Around Paris now, available wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be right back with Storytime in Paris after a word from our sponsors. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now, back to story time in Paris. So, 
we get to travel with you through this book all over the world. We spend a lot of time in the Middle East, especially in Iraq. We go to Europe. We go to Asia, especially to Japan and Southeast Asia. We go to the Caribbean islands. We spend a lot of time in Mexico. And what's really wonderful is we're reading about languages that I've never heard of in times that I rarely, if ever, think about. But your writing is so wonderful that I always feel really anchored. I always know where and when I am, which I think is a real feat. Thank you. But you put yourself in this book too, which I loved. And you got to visit a lot of these places. So you got to visit museums in England and come to the Louvre here in France. And you also took that fabulous crypto Minoan class and you got to go to Northern Finland, which I loved. And then the pandemic hit. So is there a place or are there places that you wish you could have visited and studied in person? I mean, so many. <laughs> in short. <laughs> in short, so many. I mean, actually, one place I did visit years ago, and that's relevant to the book, is southern Turkey on the Syrian border. And there are some communities that speak very old languages, you know, sort of Aramaic and those sort of related languages and scripts. Having said that, that was not really possible even before the pandemic, sadly, because of the war in Syria. So one thing that it did also bring home was, you know, you, you research places and the rich history and culture of places that are currently experiencing war and extreme violence or cultural destruction. So that was a, it wasn't, A, yes, the pandemic, it made me feel, oh, how, you know, how sad not to be able to go there, but also just some of those places thinking, how sad it is for the people there that there's this amazing history and also kind of that people now we associate certain countries or region mainly with war and then thinking but you know there's also like this long history of enormous cultural achievement and innovation and it doesn't it doesn't have to be this way I think that was the other thing like it doesn't you know you see in history of course many many examples of people going to war but then there's also this total like this peaceful exchange through you know trade this mutually beneficial you could say with a pandemic, I mean, one one helpful thing about researching a languages book in times, you know, that was just, I'd sort of finished it and it was the fact checking and the kind of finishing touches that at least it allowed me, you know, to engage in mental travel. And I think that's something a lot of people found, like there was there were all these statistics about people taking to language learning apps and all of that. And so I think it was it was nice to think like, okay, even if you can't go there, you can travel and, and plus like, you know, some of the ancient world stuff, you wouldn't be able to go there anyway, because it's it happened 3000 years ago. So that was, and it was definitely, it was nice to engage with it and to kind of like, I think that trapped feeling many of us had during the pandemic and still have, if we're still, you know, sheltering and having to protect ourselves. There is something about languages that it, it can be a channel to kind of other worlds, even when you're, when you're stuck, which is nice. So your book is about language and how it develops and how it evolves and how it's learned and how it's used and how it can die or be revived. And it's a comprehensive book, but it seems like this is the kind of topic that is inexhaustible, <laughs> just by definition. Yeah. So do you find now that you are a magnet for this kind of information and these kinds of stories? Or have you been able to like close the proverbial chapter on the topic and uh, i've definitely opened more chapters like the door is open now <laughs> as you say and also it's kind of so enjoyable and then also there's something once you have discovered certain things and it sort of empowers you because you have that understanding and you know that again is that like confidence thing as well perhaps if you 
understand certain things about ancient scripts, then you kind of don't feel so shy around them anymore. And then you kind of can't even recognize them in the museum when you go and you think like, oh, you know, you start having a relationship with that part of history as well. So I now edit this uh, series of articles about languages for the BBC's website called Let's Talk. Um, that's just started and I'll be writing and also commissioning for that. I think one one thing that the book definitely inspired me to do is also to have more people writing about their own languages because while the outside perspective can be helpful there's also the danger of I can as much as I try ultimately my perspective will always be shaped by me and I found certainly when it comes to say sign language or braille or indeed sort of braille and the usage of screen readers and things like that you know that's not that's not something I can ever investigate as authoritatively as people who are say you know native sign language speakers so in terms of the next chapter, one thing I'm keen to do is just sort of like read and edit and commission and engage with a lot more content in whichever way, whether it's, you know, written or other formats, by people kind of telling us about their own, you know, their own languages. Same for rare languages, same for, you know, anything to kind of have more of that inside perspective. I love that. That sounds fascinating. Thank you. Could we perhaps hear a little bit from your book? Sure. I thought I'd read a, a little extract from my chapter on Cipromanoan. It's a, a very, it's, it's, a, it's a rare script. There's not many examples of it, but uh, I came to really love it, and I hope you will too. It's late spring, the sun is out, and I'm sitting in a seminar room at the University of Cambridge, trying to carve two ancient symbols into the side of a small clay bowl. Projected onto the wall is the model I'm trying to copy a photo of a 3,000-year-old sacred offering from the island of Cyprus. It's inscribed with two signs in Cipro-Minoan, a script that was used on the island from around 1,600 to 900 BCE. Cipro-Minoan is mostly undeciphered, which means we can't read the text written in it, and we don't even know which language it records. It survives in only a couple of hundred inscriptions, and around the world only about 20 scholars are studying it. One of them is Philippa Steele, a classicist at the University of Cambridge, who invited me to the seminar. It was a very rare chance to see what working with such ancient signs is like, not after they've been deciphered, but while they still form this enigmatic code guarding a secret message from the past. Accounts of decipherment can sometimes sound quite dry and theoretical, but the research at Cambridge was very hands-on. Philippa Steele and her colleagues had come up with many ways of mimicking the methods of ancient scribes trying out different styluses and writing materials, inscribing tablets and figurines modelled with clay from a craft shop, and even decorating biscuits and cakes with undeciphered symbols. The cake baking was more about the joy of playing with old scripts, but the other experiments fulfilled a serious purpose. Because one of the difficulties with Cipromanoan is that it was written on many different objects. So some symbols look very different, but they were probably meant to be the same. They just came out differently because one was written on a soft, flat tablet and the other on a round clay cow. And a third was perhaps scratched into a hard-fired pot by a busy Cypriot olive oil merchant who was marking his wares before loading them onto a ship. Reenacting the movements of these original writers can reveal why and how certain signs changed form, even though their meaning stayed the same. I realised this myself after the seminar, when I checked the symbols that I'd written onto my cow against a list of known Cipromanoan symbols in Philippa Steele's book, A Linguistic History of Ancient Cyprus, 
none of the signs in the list looked like mine. It appeared that I'd invented two new signs just by writing Cipramanoan really badly. Given how little of this script has been found, it's amazing that we can make any sense of it at all. The fact that we can is largely due to the enduring connections between different cultures and their languages. Alashia, as ancient Cyprus was called, was a speck in a region of big and wealthy powers. To the north lay the Hittite-speaking areas of Anatolia in central Turkey. To the east, the vibrant trading cities of the Syrian coast. Sailing south, the Cypriots arrived in Egypt and moving westwards, they went as far as Crete. And all these civilizations experimented with writing. Hittite hieroglyphs, Near Eastern cuneiform, Egyptian hieroglyphs and various Cretan scripts circulated around the eastern Mediterranean. Sometimes they ended up in the same place, in trading cities, for example, in port cities. Cyprus, one sleepy island that had become a major copper exporter, did not come up with its signs all by itself. No, it had looked to its powerful neighbours, borrowed their best ideas, and combined them to invent something of its own. The resulting script shares some similarities with cuneiform and some with the Egyptian hieroglyphs and some, you know, with the signs that were invented on Crete. But to the people of Cyprus, it was also important, special and unique enough to be written on a little statue of a sacred bull and offered to the gods. And to us, millennia later, it tells a much bigger story of cultural innovation and exchange, and of one small island absorbing languages from all around and fashioning them into something new. You've given us a little bit of an insight, but can you tell us what's next for you? So the next thing really is this languages series, which I'm very excited about. And then I'm also working on a fiction book, so kind of going back from nonfiction to fiction. Fabulous. And where can people find you if they want to keep up to date with you and what you're doing? So mainly my articles and things are now published on uh, bbc.com. I mean, frankly, if you Google my name and BBC, then you'll come to Let's Talk. and Or indeed, you can check out Let's Talk. And that's where a lot of my recent stuff is published. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Sophie. It was so wonderful speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. To win a copy of Languages Are Good For Us, please head to the Paris Underground Radio Instagram page, like it, find the post with a copy of Sophie's book cover, and tell me which language is the oldest. Thank you again to Sophie Hardak for being such an excellent season premiere guest. You can find Sophie under Let's Talk on the BBC.com website. Please join me next week when I'll be speaking with award-winning USA Today and New York Times bestselling author Colleen Cambridge, also known as Colleen Gleason, about her murder mystery, Mastering the Art of French Murder. Check back next week to see if your questions have been answered and to hear a reading from her book. Thank you for listening to Storytime in Paris. I'm your host, Jennifer Garrity, and you can find me on all socials at Jennyphoria. That's J-E-N-N-Y-P-H-O-R-I-A. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you listen to podcasts. This is the fastest and easiest way to help the podcast grow, which will help me attract more great authors to bring to you. Please also spread the word to all the people you know who also love to read. 
If you'd like to go even deeper, join our book club over on Patreon at patreon.com slash Paris Underground Radio, where I invite authors who have been on the podcast to come speak with us about their books and delve even deeper into the secrets we couldn't spoil on the podcast. Thank you again, and happy reading! This episode of Storytime in Paris was produced by Jennifer Garrity for Paris Underground Radio. For more on this show and shows like it, please visit parisundergroundradio.com.